Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 27. Our guest this week, Dr. Ed Kim, is the Physician-in-Chief at City of Hope, Orange County in Southern California, a world-leading organization in cancer treatment and research. Dr. Kim joined City of Hope in fulfilling its promise of enhanced local access of cancer breakthroughs. Now, we'll talk about Ed's story of becoming a physician. We'll discuss the origins of City of Hope and how its culture of excellence has prevailed for over 100 years. We'll also talk about the importance of treating diverse communities with personalization to build trust, deliver the right message, and elevate the quality of care. So before we get started, make sure to hit the like button below, share it with colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis, so that you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Ed, welcome to the show. It sounds to me like you landed with the right organization. Thanks, Glenn. I, I, I do indeed feel like I am with the right organization. City Hope is just a wonderful place and a, and a really world-class organization. So, Ed, tell me uh, what your fascination is with Legos. I mean, just to prove this to our viewers and listeners, if you can see us right now, see, he even branded or co-branded the Lego box he sent me with the City of Hope logo. I mean, what's the fascination, Ed? I love it. Thank you very much. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know the origin story of it, Glenn. Uh, you know, I remember having them as kids and, you know, it was back when toys were very simple, right? There weren't too many sophisticated toys. Uh, still remember when the first, you know, electronic handheld game was invented and you started playing it. You thought it was the coolest thing ever and Pong was on video. But, you know, Legos, I appreciate their simplicity, their utility and how one can be extremely creative with them because they're just like blocks, right? I mean, we started with blocks and you, you had to depend on gravity and weight in order for those blocks to stand up and a level surface. Legos were the next step, right? Who knew you could make little tiny holes and, and, and ridges and they could connect and now you could make bridges and you know go horizontal, vertical, you know, your plane became three-dimensional as opposed to a single dimension with blocks. And I, I think I love that aspect of them. Well, perhaps this explains why you became a physician to begin with, but I don't know if you knew this about Legos, Ed, but now I've learned from my five-year-old daughter that the pieces are so small. I mean, before they were these large blocks and they became a little bit smaller, but now the pieces are so tiny um, it, it's it, it, you have more than enough endless possibilities to create your own uh, vision for what those Legos can do for your imagination. But let, let's move on. In fact, I'd like to actually ask that question to you, Ed, is why did you become a physician and when did you 
really find out that you were on that path? Were you inspired by, uh, by someone in particular or how'd this come about? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a personal story and I'll, I'll share it. I'd be happy to, um, you know, it's taken years to be able to talk about it, frankly. Uh, you know, I always, my mom was an artist and my father was a finance professor at India. Mm. And so didn't have any physicians in our family at all. No one in medicine. Uh, and you know, I thought I would actually be an engineer who designed cars, loved cars, loved drawing them, loved uh, was in a bunch of art shows when I was younger, really from my mom's side. And uh, I had a brother who was two years younger than me. And when I was 14 and he was 12, he actually passed away suddenly from a late, late complication of a viral illness. And that's why this pandemic especially is something that's very terrifying because he had a uh, syndrome called Kawasaki syndrome. So he was, when he was uh, very young, he had a viral illness for about a week and then recovered. It was fine. And then at age 12, um, had a cardiac aneurysm uh, that first. It was uh, one of the late stage complications of Kawasaki syndrome. And that was it. And I will tell you that day, I remember it vividly. Uh, that was when I decided to dedicate my career to medicine. I uh, thought I would do pediatric cardiology. I know, shocker, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I did research in it, went, you know, worked myself, got to medical school. And I set up my first rotation in medical school as pediatrics, very excited. And I just, didn't like it. it, you know, and I don't, it's not the kids that I think it's because you can't talk to patients directly so much. Mm. I think if it was an adolescent population, probably better, but you know, the young kids who are in the hospital, it's just a difficult uh, population. So mm. uh, I was pretty lost in medical school after that. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. And oncology, I can tell you was not in the top 10. I had friends who said, oh, I want to be a hemonk, you know, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that sounds so depressing. You know, why would you want to work with people who have cancer all the time and as such? And finally, when I went down for my internal medicine training uh, and my fourth rotation was an oncology rotation and that changed my life. Uh, I mean, there are several things that have changed my life, but that meeting the patient, I had not done zero research in oncology, had zero interest. It just happened to be one of my rotations that came up the patients were absolutely special, you know, and I think it goes along with when you hear that word cancer, it really connotes a completely different reaction than if you heard somebody broke their arm or had a heart attack or something. It's, it's a very different just feeling. And it doesn't matter if it's early stage, late stage, just that word. And I, I really appreciated the, the perspective the, uh, the, just the global perspective of patients who had cancer. And I think that's what it really brings out of you is just, wow, you look at everything different. And uh, I, will, I would say it's been an absolute privilege and joy to be in this field, um, you know, trying to help, just try and be part of the team to get rid of this terrible disease, uh, to see progress, but to know we have so much more left to do um, and then there's the, the three dimensions we talked about with the Legos. It's not only trying to find the right treatments, trying to find access for the right populations. It's trying to change how we do research. It's how can we speed up the regulatory process? I mean, there's so many dimensions of how we can help people 
that uh, it, it can appear very overwhelming, but uh, I think it's in line with how my career has gone. Uh, I had no idea that MD Anderson was in Houston when I accepted my residency down there. And that's when I found cancer and that's uh, I had great mentors there and, you know, learned, uh, learned to write protocols, study research, uh, listen to patients and really see what, uh, what we could do in the clinic and take that information back to the lab. So that sort of reverse migration is really important. So, so take us back, if I may. Um, first of all, uh, thank you for sharing that story. And uh, what was your brother's name? Uh, uh, Donald. Pardon me? Donald. Donald? Yep. Let, let's do this show for Donald. Yeah, that's great. Okay. That, that's, um, <sighs> you're a good man. So take us to where you're at today, Ed. You're the, this new physician-in-chief, uh, this soon-to-be new cancer care center in, 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 with the beautiful mountains in the background of uh, Irvine, California, here in South Orange County. Take a moment to, to share with our viewers and listeners uh, the opportunities that you see that can be seized in accelerating the advancements uh, in cancer care uh, for City of Hope, Orange County. Yeah, it's, it's an impressive, impressive organization. For over 100 years, uh, the foundation in which City of Hope was built upon to help those that were sick and had no place else to go, it started with tuberculosis and the people who came from the East Coast and came to LA and then they got sick. And so they, they came out into Duarte and uh, there were two tents. And, you know, I, and I like to read up on history and, and know kind of where it comes from, because in order to be part of City of Hope, I, I want to really understand its roots, its origins. And uh, Sam Golter, it was just a, he was a genius. You know, he he uh, I would love to have met him because I'm sure he was a firecracker of a person. Uh, he was very humanistic. And, you know, his goal was we need to take care of everyone and their families and their whole situation and, and care for them. and these people would come and they would die because there was no treatment for tuberculosis. And frankly, Glenn, I think he just got pissed off. Can I say that on the air? I'm sorry. Uh, it's too late. And guess what? Everybody would uh, appreciate that, but keep going. I think he just got mad because people were just coming and dying. And as humanistic as he was and the approach that he, he had, he wanted to change that. So it drove him to start thinking of, well, what can we do out of the box to treat tuberculosis? Can we cut out these areas? Can we, you know, do some local treatments? And, you know, how can we spur research to study how we can prevent it? And these were all the things that started going through his brain. And he started spurring on because he was just sick and tired of people coming. He loved helping them. But what, what's the next step? And you know, that, that was the first part of his chapter. The second part of his chapter was, you know, he, all of this was through philanthropy. He raised money through a, an early Jewish uh, foundation uh, group out of LA. And, and they finally had enough money to build a medical building. So a young architect, young man designed the building. They were so excited about it. And he tragically died of leukemia before the building was built. So here he is again. Now he's gone, you know, you know, and I'm kind of a 
comic book geek. So he's gone incredible Hulk here now. And now he's just really mad. And, you know, this young man who he just really loved and, you know, thought it was part of his family just passed away. He's, you know, it was less, I think he was under 30 years old. And that's what shifted his whole vision into cameo. So it started with TB, research, prevention, treatment, now cancer. And, and I think that's the root origin story of what happened to City of Hope and why they have become such a powerful world force in cellular therapies, bone marrow transplant. You know, if you have a liquid tumor, that, this, that is the place to be. And, uh, and rightfully so, that was that origin. Now they've got, you know, all these other services and, you know, kind of what, what has prompted me to move uh, now twice uh, is because I like to see change occur. Uh, I think we have good services and, and excellent care, but how do you keep building on excellent? Because mm-hmm. if the bar is set there, then what are we worrying about? But I, I feel like you can always raise the bar and raising the bar means trying to raise yourself, but it also helps others see uh, a higher bar and, and raise themselves. And so, you know, in the end, if you've been able to increase Whatever, pick it, access to care, research, uh, availability of excellent specialized services. And you know, I live in the cancer world, so more prevention, more screening. Now we've impacted something bigger. And that's where I see this opportunity at City of Hope and especially Orange County is it's a bigger impact. 3.2 million and growing Southern California, a lot of tech, a lot of smart people. I mean, believe me, it's intimidating how many smart scientists physicians, industry leaders are in Southern California, but you know, you you never know what you can do until you try. So how are you going to influence and build on that excellence? What, what is your hope to your, in terms of how you feel that you can contribute uh, to this institution that has built quite a legacy? Yeah, I, I feel like some of it is refinement. Some of it is extension. And, and some of it is sometimes you just have to figure out what things need a version 2.0. And uh, that's, that's what I look at. Um, you know, one example I love, uh, I, I, I told you about the Legos and I love Legos, uh, is, you know, I'm not much of a golfer. I will, I, let me disclaim that. By the way, I'm not either. I'm not either. I'm, I, I have no, I'm not shy about that, but keep going. I'm a tennis player. And as you know, you know, you, you have a set of rackets that you use in tennis and, you know, a lot of the pros, they bring out multiples. It's the same racket. And, and I always felt like golf was more complicated than it needed to be. Right. I mean, every club is a different length and you really have to hit about six shots on a hole. I mean, I hit eight or 10 um, to, you know, to do well. And you've got to change your stance. You've got to change a lot of things. And I really gravitated to the single length iron when they came out several years ago. And uh, Bryson DeChambeau, for instance, uses them on the tour and everybody calls him a freak or a scientist and just you know overthinks the game. And now he's showing the success he has. But people forget that Bobby Jones actually was the first person who used single length irons to win the Grand Slam. I think it was in the 1930 or something like that. Uh, and, and it just was an idea that got put aside. And, and Bryson actually got... Uh, reinvigorated to try it because he was at the Masters and he saw in their museum Bobby Jones' single-length iron. And so I switched to them really early. 
And I can tell you, I hit a more consistent ball. I hit a, a better ball. Um, I've actually, you know, me and my friend who play in some of uh, these uh, tournaments, we've actually won our flights several times. And, you know, if you can simplify things, right? If, if the iron shot is the only thing you have to worry about, whether you've got a three, a five, or a nine, it's the same swing. Now we can execute and be a little more precise or dream a little more or think of that rather than, oh man, we have a separate shot for every, swing for every shot. And now I want to add another level of complexity onto it. I think that's like healthcare. At your core, you have to have some very simple, deliverable services. And if it's not simple to begin with, how do you begin to even start putting on the complexity, the layers, et cetera? It's like precision medicine on top. You know, if you deliver good healthcare, then how come to make that next step to personalizing the healthcare for someone is so difficult? And Glenn, it is difficult. I don't know a lot of places that can do it well. And I just think it speaks to what our core functions are, is that we've had to patchwork them together to get them to a certain excellent level. But now when we start building on top of that, it makes it even more complex. And I, I think it's a time where we can simplify things, get down to what the root core uh, competencies are, and then build complexities on top of them. And that's that Lego example. It's the single length golf club example. You know, I just, it just makes sense to me. And that's, that's what I hope to do in, with this, this incubator that we have in Orange County is to bring what we have with industry, healthcare, research, precision medicine. And now how can we create a model to deliver those services efficiently, not have to underwrite them with all kinds of cost and personnel so that the patient, the consumer out there has access, that's easy, and it shouldn't be that complicated. So, so how would you define personalized care? Because, you know, we've been talking for years in healthcare uh, about how we're so patient-centered. Um, what is personalized care 2.0, Ed? Yeah, and I think it, it will depend on what level you start and I'm going to look at it now from the patient view of a City of Hope patient. So traditionally, that has been someone who has been diagnosed with cancer and needs subspecialty care and to make sure that they do. On the flip side, it's hard to travel up to Duarte for everything. And how can we deliver that expertise closer to where people live? Orange County in Southern California is a big footprint, and I haven't even gotten to experience the traffic in a normal non-pandemic uh, time. So I can And Ed, just really quick to give our, our listeners and viewers a sense of this, uh, where Irvine is compared to Duarte, California, that's in Los Angeles and Irvine is in Orange County. It's a good, you know, 50, 60 miles, depending where you're at in Orange County. But from uh, facility to facility, it's about 50, 60 miles. So you're talking to maybe an hour, hour and a half if you're lucky. So sorry, I just want to give people the geo understanding of, of the, 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 the distance between these two areas. And even, I think, again, being new to the area, but even South Orange County to yeah. Irvine, it could be another hour depending on how traffic is. And so yeah, I, I really believe that 
we have to figure out first how to deliver that specialty and that expertise. And again, the core competencies are, are we diagnosing someone correctly? Are we doing the appropriate staging and evaluation? And are we testing the right markers for their particular type of cancer? That to me is pretty simple stuff. I know it sounds complex, but it is not difficult to deliver that type of service. The next step after that then is, Who's the right person, if it's a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, or a, onco- or a scientist who has all this expertise on an international level, who is the next step? And so that, that is the next sort of layer. The other aspect is I feel like people should have the options of hearing about clinical trials and research. We need to be able to deliver that effectively close to where people are. So that's the core group I'm looking at. And, and considering the next group, however, is you know, there's a lot of people out there nervous about cancer. Mm-hmm. They're reading about it. They're seeing it. Their family member or neighbor just were diagnosed. What can they do to now take steps to prevent it or catch it early? So they need to know about screening tests. And it matters if you are what, what race you are, African-Americans, Latino, uh, you know, Asian American, Caucasian, they have different risks and when sh- they should get screening procedures. And I don't think that's readily known by people unless you go seek it. So part of my job, I feel, is we've got to bring that information to people, make sure they are empowered with the information. Now, if they don't want to get screening tests, okay, it's because they knew and they chose not to. But I really feel like not enough people know and, and that's our job is to make sure they know, and more importantly than how they can now take steps to do that. And if we do that, I will be a very happy person. So will I, <laughs> because uh, in case you didn't know this, said I'm, I'm, I'm Hispanic. And so I know that my, my community, and I, I knew you knew that, but my community uh, is very much susceptible to this chronic disease called cancer in the many different forms of cancer. So what, what do you say to these growing uh, Latino and black populations that um, are getting it um, and many times don't know that they have it until it's too late? Yeah. Number one is we need to make sure we have the right messengers, right? Uh, people know who they are and they know how they grew up. And hmm big deficits out there is that we don't have medical providers who are in the right communities to speak the language, to relate to the culture. I think that's really important because many of our backgrounds are rooted in that. The the second is, is that we need to make sure there's an understanding and a trust. There has been a lot of mistrust uh, with the medical system and research, especially in certain demographics, Tuskegee, others. And so we need to establish that trust. And that's why being in the community, uh, being part of it is really important. And and then and then third is, is that just to make sure they understand there is these opportunities. And and I know, you know, my mother every year, I she she asks me, sorry, mom, I'm going to bring you up in this podcast. uh, You know, should I get this shot? Should I get this? And I'm like, you know, my friend told me I shouldn't get it. I'm like, okay, mom, listen to your friend. Don't listen to your son, the doctor who, you know, probably, you know, has the closest relationship with you short of your husband, you know, 
it's very entertaining because people, they talk to each other, they hear about things. You know, you, you can witness what different types of stories and rumors have occurred with the COVID vaccine, for instance, and uh, it, it begins to permeate. So to have a trusted source that you can rely on, that there's no pressure, just mm -hmm. let's share information, I think is so important. And when we begin to tailor not treatment, only treatment or screening, but research mm -hmm. in populations, again, we need to engage the people who are the leaders in those communities, make sure they understand what the purpose of the research is, why it's important, and how it will benefit that specific demographic or community. And many times, Glenn, it's reactionary, right? Um, Unfortunately. Files, there's small percentages of Blacks and Latino and other ethnicities, and they make extrapolations we need to do a better job of really reflecting what uh, the research is, who is, needs to be involved in, and how it reflects our community. I mean, let's not forget, these are the fastest growing populations in this country, yet many of them uh, feel out of touch with the healthcare system. So, uh, so what we're really talking about here is a complete transformation of looking at our future patients as the one that need the most preventive uh, care and education now. I mean, we can't have these doubts linger much longer. I mean, this is why we're seeing that large employers, as an example, they're all in the business of health. Why? Because their fastest growing employee populations are that of Asian, Hispanic, Black, and other uh, popu diverse populations where they're not just more, most susceptible to it, but so are their parents and grandparents. So it's almost creating this, this uh, traffic jam in the, in the, um, in the delivery of care uh, because the people that need to, need, need to know about this now are so far behind in their education. So how do we get them to catch up, Ed? And, and, what, and what's the opportunity here for City of Hope Orange County? I mean, uh, the demographics uh, across all three of these uh, communities are very, very prevalent uh, throughout Orange County. Yeah, the, the first thing I've been talking about is we need to bring our expertise to every corner of Orange County. So that's number one. And we're mapping out a strategy where we can be present in the corners. And so that's number one. Um, you know, it, nothing frustrates me more where if you're just saying, we have this great center we're building in Irvine, come see us. You know, it, it, you're biased then in who's going to come see you. And we really need to be proactive and, and bringing it out to the corners. The second is, is that we need to make sure we create the same opportunities in each of these corners mm. to make sure that the research is there, the expertise is there, the, the, the medical experts to the genetic counselors, to the supportive care folks, to the survivorship. We need to make sure all those services are available so again, that we are treating our entire patient uh, community with the same level of expertise. We want it to be so that they, if they came to Irvine or if they came to Duarte, that's how you feel. That's the energy you should be able to really absorb when you walk into those buildings or campuses. And whether it's even you're sitting there and doing something remotely over a telegenetics, for instance, that's a great way to be engaged. Yes. But we really, it, it does take, Glenn, it, it, it is something that just because we put a location there, 
it won't be that it happens overnight. Um, as you know, some of the work I've been trying to do with clinical trials, not only find cool drugs and see if they're going to work, but I want to change the fundamental backbone of the clinical trial. And we've, we've been able to successfully do that twice now with inclusion criteria. The type of person who is allowed into a clinical trial usually has to clear on a median number of 37 eligibility criteria. Hmm. Now, I get it. We want to be safe. Safety is our number one issue on any clinical trial. But now we're using safety to be exclusionary. And, you know, if you were diagnosed or I was diagnosed with cancer or something, let the patient decide what their risk benefit is, especially if a standard therapy has stopped working, et cetera. So a lot of this movement has been our clinical trials need to reflect the face of our population. And they don't. They don't include Latinos, Blacks, Asians. They don't. And, and those are the people who are getting these treatments. So that is a big movement. I'm trying to eliminate the majority of these clinical trial eligibility. I think they're inherently biased. The National Cancer Institute has adopted our recommendations that have come from the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Friends of Cancer Research. Um, we, the FDA has also adopted them. So we are chipping away at them so that who gets tested in a cancer clinical trial, and even more so in any clinical trial, is reflective of the population who will receive it. So let's shift gears a bit in terms of where you see the industry going. And by that, what, what transformations do you fear the most for their potential to, neg to negatively disrupt, especially based upon what you've learned during this pandemic year? I, I feel that medicine is becoming, and I'm talking the business of medicine, is becoming highly matrixed, highly complex, hmm. so many different stakeholders and relationships and contingencies. And I understand that. The, the payers have a challenging job. They've got to make sure, and, and, and Medicare, and all the different types of systems. Yep. The bottom line is, we just want to do what's right. And, and we want to provide the right service to the people who seek it. And a lot of this seems like we're filing income taxes every year or something. It just, it's, it's very complex. And I think we need a simpler way to get people approved, to get people uh, access to care. You know, the COVID vaccine, you know, they didn't have to do a two-week check on everything, et cetera. You showed up. You got it. You know, and that should be the way that we have for our normal medical care for folks. That, so that is one of my fears. Uh, on the flip side, though, I am hopeful that this pandemic, as terrible as it's been and, and it continues to be that way, but, you know, hopefully we're turning the corner. We always want to try and figure out what we can learn from something very a very challenging, very difficult. And that would be the worst tragedy is for us not to learn and adopt. And one of those things would be, wow, look how quickly we got drugs approved that are helping people. It didn't take years. It took months uh, even to invent these drugs. Informed consent. And it seems like such a 
minute process in this whole machinery that we're talking about. But the fact that previously you had to have an in-person signed wet copy to take 20 or 30 minutes to enroll someone into treatment or a trial. And that was the regulatory standard when, you know, you can order a car online or, you know, get a loan or buy a house, you know, with an e-signature. I just don't understand some of those things. And, And Glenn, as you alluded to earlier in the interview, that simplicity, what are the core things required to, for a, for a person to get onto a trial, whether they have cancer or they're healthy. And if it's saying you have to show up in person and listen to someone talk, maybe not even in your native language and, and have them sign a wet signature, you have already discriminated against a large proportion of the population. That's exactly right. I don't think that's right. So hopefully we can learn an electronic way to enroll people and give them access into this, or at least not that technique that I just described. Right. So that that big transformational uh, change in, in the whole process. So tell me where you, I mean, just so our viewers and listeners are aware, uh, not only are you, are, are you a, a physician, but you also went back to get your MBA. So uh, you, you're, you're an individual that understands the importance of the business and the leadership side of things. Uh, where do you think, uh, how do you think that healthcare can move from being what has been historically known as a cottage industry to one that supports a big business mentality? And I know we're, uh, I get it. We, we also want to serve our communities. And sometimes if we become too big business, we lose sight of our communities. But th- there seems to be a fundamental shift taking place in healthcare where the way we lead and drive change is, is substantially uh, evolving. What are your thoughts, uh, Ed? Yeah, I, I believe that fundamental to medicine and science is that you share knowledge. <laughs> and that, that's really important. And, and we've seen that with global collaborations in trying to crack the genetic code and other, and these efforts work, you know, uh, the war against HIV and other things. Um, there are many places that feel they are the best. And okay, you know, if we have certain metrics in which we define those things, you can have many who are the best. This is not the Olympics. This, you know, this is, uh, this, there's not one gold medal here. Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, what can we do to help elevate everyone? And, you know, different cancer centers will always have their strengths in one side or the other. But how can we help primary care and family mm-hmm. and rural medicine where we're not going to have cancer specialists embedded in those communities right away? The hope is we will in some way, shape or form, but it shouldn't depend on a single person having to be in one remote location to, in, in, in order to deliver that excellent care. So we need to create processes that can empower these individuals. And it could be a nurse practitioner or an advanced practice nurse. It could be you know, a, a pharmacist. It yeah. could be a general um, medical family physician, or it could be an oncologist, but who's not a subspecialist. And you know me, I'm a super, super subspecialist. So I can answer questions about lung cancer, but you know, breast and colon, I'll tell you where you can get that information that's yeah. better for 
That's what we need to do is elevate that level of care, take it to the corners of whether it's Orange County or other places. And, and I think that is that connected world that we need. And if people have that access to that information, that education, and, and we don't put up the huge barriers for them to receive it. I mean, if we have to start mobilizing mobile trucks to come out once a month to these rural locations so people can get their mammograms or you know, lung screening tests, et cetera, what's stopping us? You know, the food truck industry is doing great right now. You know, I mean, you know, why don't we create that model in, in healthcare? You know, the, the same thing to me. I, I, I just, I think there's ways we can really change how we deliver it, how we can make it convenient for the person who doesn't have that access. And, and it will elevate everything. So to close, Ed, I'd like for you to react to the following statement. Knowing something's right isn't enough to start doing what's right. And knowing something's wrong isn't enough to stop doing it. It seems to me that uh, people are having trouble understanding what's right and how to act on it. But yet we also seem to understand what's wrong. But yet we seem to have much more clarity on acting on that. How does this statement relate to uh, where you see cancer care and your impact on it? Yeah, that's a, you always have really uh, nice ones at the end, Glenn. This is uh, is great. You know, I I think right and wrong, we, we understand it on the far edges. But then there's this middle area where there's a lot of interpretation. Hmm. And I never like to tell people the right or wrong. I, it's, it's really, everyone has an opinion. That's what makes this country as, as great as it is, that there is this freedom of speech and you can discuss these things in a peaceful way. I always like to say, well, I'm not really concerned about who's right or wrong, but wouldn't it be cool if we could go here and, 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 you know, and, and, and give a common goal that both sides resonate with that is for more of the greater good? So if you, if you continue to, you know, the, the, the way marketing uses North stars, et cetera, I, I don't really care if they're stars or mountaintops or whatever, but if you give a goal of what, where we together want to get to, well, some people will say, ah, oh, no, that's too aspirational. You'll never get there. Well, that's okay. If you say you, that's where you let me help and worry about that. I'll take that burden on. That's how I feel like this is, this job at City of Hope is, is that, you know, I've seen the vision, I've heard the vision of Robert Stone and, and how he, he feels about this. I, I've met with Annette Walker, Mike Calgary, the leaders, Steve Rosen. Uh, you know, they are incredibly competent and talented leaders, and I'm inspired by them. And so for them to say, gosh, we want to have you help shepherd us into this next sort of chapter of City of Hope. And yes, we have all this history and culture, but can we take that, the best of it, make some modifications, incubate, try some things and go forward? That's exactly how I think. And, you know, whether it's sport or whether it's, you know, Legos or what, you know, I don't care the color. I don't care to play. Let's, what's the end goal? The end goal is we want to elevate the level of care and access in Orange County and then really across the enterprise. If we can do that, 
then, hey, help, help me. Tell me what is the best from the right side and the wrong side. And as long as we're meeting that goal, we're all going to be on the same side. You know, uh, and that was so eloquent. And I'll close by sharing this with you is, you know, at the beginning, I said that part of your communication style is one to be uh, simplistically impactful. Uh, I think clearly your message uh, today, uh, whether it's about life <laughs> or whether it's about cancer care or whether it's about uh, your journey and uh, uh, the passing of your, your brother, uh, Donald, that inspired you to become the person that you are today, is that uh, it's about let's move beyond what's been successful for all these years and let's uh, find that level of significance that can help us uh, achieve things that we never thought were possible. And it's very clear that uh, that's where you're headed uh, that's where City of Hope is headed. And I can't thank you enough for, for spending uh, your time today talking about the story, which I'm sure will inspire millions and uh, will give people hope, uh, knowing that uh, what, where, where City of Hope is headed uh, with leaders like yourself and physicians like yourself is uh, tremendously hopeful. So thank you so much uh, for your time. Did you have any final comments? I feel the way you closed it was perfect, Ed. Uh, Glenn, I, I really appreciate you and uh, the the message you bring to your uh, you know your big community, and it's, it's an honor always talking to you and being on, on on with you. Thank you so much. And as I always leave the show, in the when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thanks again, Ed. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.